people I idolized and admired and now they're, you know, supporters of my company. So it was, it was very humbling to have them want to invest. This is Funded, a show where founders who raised millions in venture capital share the gritty side of what it actually took to get that money in the bank. I'm Jason Ye. Not too long ago, I was trying to get my ideas funded. And back in the day, I was a VC listening to founders pitch me for money. If you only know me as the host of a podcast called Funded, you might think I believe raising venture capital is the only true successful path forward. But that's just not the case. There are numerous paths to success that don't involve outside capital, and I'm a huge fan of all of them. For those of you who do decide to raise, make sure you check your intentions. Is it because it feels like the right thing to do for your business? Or is it because you associate success with being venture-backed? This isn't an ivory tower criticism. I point this out because I know firsthand how easy it can be to associate being bigger with being better, to chase the path that feeds your ego and not your soul. Andrew Gazdecki, founder of Acquire.com, knows a lot about only raising from VCs when it's the right move for the business. He bootstrapped his previous company to a significant exit. And Acquire.com, well, it's a marketplace to help entrepreneurs sell their small businesses, most of which have not taken a dime of outside funding. In fact, a lot of Andrew's marketing dissuades entrepreneurs from raising money. Rather than viewing VC dollars as a shortcut to success, he emphasizes the significance of creating a business of value first. Andrew's belief is by focusing on the foundation of delivering value to customers, entrepreneurs can set themselves up for long-term success with or without venture dollars. And as the saying goes, you can't build a skyscraper on a shaky foundation. I was always kind of like, I guess you could say hustling. I had <laughs> like, I did all the, the typical cliche stuff when I was younger, like at eBay store when I was like 13, uh, you gotta be 18 actually be on eBay. I was selling like, I was bending the rules. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a number of just different, like, I was always just, I guess just figuring out ways to make money. You know, I grew up in a town called uh, San Clemente and it's a, it's a really nice yeah. area, beautiful area, but yeah. I didn't really grow up with too much. And I go over to my friend's house and uh, just see like huge mansions and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, right by the beach, amazing place to grow up. But, um, you know, I think what really instilled entrepreneurship in me was, um, you know, entrepreneurship now is super trendy. It's, you know, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to start a company. And I think that's awesome. Um, but for me, it was just out of necessity. I, you know, I needed to make yeah. money to uh, buy, you know, stuff I wanted, new skateboard, whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, thinking back, you know, I was kind of a troublemaker. Got got in trouble. Nothing with the law or anything like that. But um, <laughs> you know, I I grew up skateboarding. Grew up always with some sort of idea or something. And then, uh, like other things. Were, were you shy growing up? I wasn't like the most 
I'm, I'm like half introvert, half extrovert. I think I've always kind of been that way. Uh, yeah. So no, but were you afraid to make the ask? I guess is what I'm getting at. You know, no, never. Something. No, never, 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 never afraid. No, I always say. I mean, the answer is always no unless you ask. So I would. I was always asking. I was always asking questions. I was. I had. You know, when I'd go over to my friend's house, I'd always want to talk to the parents and be like, "What do you do? How did you?" Right become so successful or something like that. Um, I was always very curious. I still am today. I love learning. That's probably my favorite thing is just diving in on something. I guess, you know, one thing I'm really grateful for is I found my passion, I guess, really early in life, which was just business. Just kind of the rush of when something works or you sell something on eBay or, you know, these were when I was a teenager. And then everything yeah. kind of just progressed from there. But I'd say just I've I've always kind of naturally been good at sales, and maybe that helped. I, I I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think the background that you have is different some from some of the other people I've talked to who have come from technology and software and building things that require a lot of time and effort in in the beginning before they can even start selling. But your background is with eBay. You know, you started an eBay store. And so the moment you start an eBay business, you're selling and you're generating revenue. And so when you say you found your passion, it sounds like you found this passion for business, probably this idea of like solving a problem and getting, extracting value out of that. And so your path into to business maybe didn't lend itself to thinking about raising outside capital right away. Can, can you tell me a little bit about your first experiences with business and whether or not this idea of like bringing on capital even hit your brain or, or when that became a concept to you? I mean, as a teenager, I didn't even know what raising capital was. So <laughs> for my first business, uh, it was a company called Business Apps, like my first real business with employees and stuff like that. We only raised $100,000, and even that felt like an enormous amount of money. I was 21 at the time. Wow. But still- Who'd you raise that from? Uh, two individuals, Robert Chazarino okay. and uh, another individual named Christian Friedland. Got it. They were basically just two entrepreneurs in my college town. I went to CSU Chico State, um, and they were great mentors. And I learned yeah. probably everything I know about business from them. They were- super hands-on they didn't make a lot of angel investments and so that allowed them to spend a lot of time uh, really helping me shape the business at one point we were doing daily updates and then because the business um, began growing so fast like every day was kind of different and then we moved to like <laughs> weekly and then monthly and then quarterly so yeah and then just long story short on that business ran it for about eight years and then um it was acquired when I was 29. And after that, started a crypto company for some reason. I literally started building the, the company while my first business was in due diligence and then jumped right in. And for anyone listening, wow. and you, if you sell no this, break. yeah, I don't recommend that because you don't get to like celebrate <laughs> the win or anything like that. I literally went from like one challenging problem company team to manage to another more complex challenging problem team to manage but that's what i enjoy i mean i just love right. building businesses and 
So, so business apps, I mean, you did raise a hundred thousand dollars, but that was like two different angels. Like I wouldn't call that raising massive capital. So for all intents and purposes, that was, that was a bootstrap business and you, you ran it for, I guess, eight years before selling it. Yeah. And this next business, uh, obviously just kind of monkey barring from one to the next. Also, you didn't wait for outside capital. You started building it. Well, so for the, the crypto business, we ended up raising 700K for that. So just like a small jump up. Okay. But I put a good amount of money into that business before raising capital. I've done that with all of my businesses is all typically put in at least enough to get to product market fit. Uh, like at business apps, we were generating, I believe, I don't know, it's called like 100K a year or something like that. And that was <laughs> self-funded through a different business, which was a mini job that I had created that gave me like some unique insights. It was a job board that connected mobile developers with businesses. And I kept seeing the same job posted over and over and over. And so I just thought like, oh, let's make a template. And then I could sell the template. So I sold yeah. that job board and used that as initial seed funding. Right. <laughs> I, and I think that's actually a good part of the conversation to get to because so you start micro acquire and I've been a follower of yours for a while now and have watched micro acquire kind of, um, just kind of come out of the ground running with a really, really strong voice around what it means to start businesses and what you need to start a business and what you don't need to start businesses. So when you started micro acquire, did you think it was going to be a large venture backed business or were you able to see the sort of initial strands of, um, a profitable business or, or a self-sustaining business from the get-go? Like, how, how did you think about MicroAcquire as you were starting it? Yeah, good question. Um, so the answer to that would be no. I, I actually started as a, a side project. I kind of mm -hmm. just looked at the market and saw zero innovation in terms of acquisitions. Uh, my two previous businesses, finding a buyer was the hardest thing in the world. And so I thought there had to be a better way, something specific to startup, something specific to SaaS, and I just couldn't find anything. And the current solutions and the optionality for, say, smaller businesses, let's call it like 10 million or less in revenue, you'd have to pay like a business broker 15%, which is like a small seed round. So I, I looked at that <laughs> and I'm like, okay. If it really felt like a, like a wealth front, you know, financial advisor situation where a lot of the parts of an acquisition, you know, they're very complex, but it's all manual. A lot of it happens offline. And so I thought, you know, what if we made a marketplace where we remove the middleman and we let buyers and sellers connect directly? So I kind of just thought to myself, you know, as I was selling business apps, you know, if, if I just wanted to sell the business, and find buyers immediately, like what would it take for me to list a business on a marketplace? And uh, yeah, so I was just scratching my own itch and then it just kind of took off. But by no means did I started <laughs> thinking like, I'm gonna change the landscape of M&A. Um, you know, I kind of right. was just dabbling at first and then as it started picking up, I really saw just how, cause you know, when, when you put something out into the world and then a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, like, thank you for building this. Like, I can't believe this yeah. doesn't exist yet. You start to get this real feedback from a large amount of people and it's very consistent. 
And I think that's a, a good way to, you know, kind of not push all your chips in all at once. You know, I kind of built it myself, generated, I think we got to, let's call it like 600,000 annual recurring revenue um, before taking any outside capital. Wow. So there was, there was. So this was, this was still a side project. So you would, you're, you're scratching this itch. You, you knew it was a challenge because, you know, you, you sold a company before and you felt that disconnect between buyers and sellers. But talk me through a little bit about that, the momentum as it was building, like you threw out probably just a, a landing page or something that represented this idea. Um, how did you go from that to 600K with zero money raised? No, actually, so I did the opposite of what I would recommend. I <laughs> overbuilt the marketplace because my thought was if I was going to really, you know, if a startup was really going to list on a marketplace, I kind of needed to out startup them, if that is like a term where, you know, it looks beautiful. The user experience, you know, instills trust. And so uh, you wanted them to feel safe. Yeah. So I really invested a lot in you know, the initial prototype or the initial MVP, if you will, and yeah. uh, had no business model at all. Everything was completely free. You could sign up, you could start talking with sellers immediately. We did that for about a year. So basically all customer support, all listings vetted by me, every single newsletter written by me. Uh, wow. What else? Product management, like <laughs> everything was ran <laughs> by me for, yeah, about a year and a half. But it wasn't like work. I mean, I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah. I'd wake up from like four to like, I'd work to like midnight every single night. And then I'd wake up like super excited to, cause I'd wake up and then I'd see these really, really interesting companies looking to sell. And most of them are bootstrapped. You know, they were yeah, you know, yeah. self-funded and they were selling I, for- I just want to pause and say, say like, you're about to talk about these entrepreneurs and, and their excitement. But as I asked you about it, and as you were talking about waking up early, like just that smile that creeps on your face and, and sort of light in your eye, that that's, it's a really special thing to, to see and to hear, right? You didn't need capital. You weren't making money necessarily, but you saw the problem that you were solving. And it feels like it's something that really lights a fire. And I think that's kind of what drives a lot of great entrepreneurs. Do you feel like you're always chasing that or is that just something that is kind of natural to you? I'd say, you know, well, before I started MicroCore, I kind of used this like uh, framework and it, it started with the customer. So I'm a big advocate of, you know, you have to love the customer that you're serving and you have to love the problem that you're trying to solve. Otherwise, it's just right. going to be, it's going to feel like work. And then you're going to be competing against someone that it doesn't feel like work. And they're going to work twice as hard, twice as fast. Uh, and maybe with right. a little more love, uh, you know, like they really, really want this problem solved. And that's just, I basically built like my video game where like, yeah, I want to go play. Like, <laughs> that's a great quote. And, that's uh, a great quote. And it was just such a cool business because I got to look at startups all the time. And I'm kind of like, I always joke where I say, you know, some people like to play tennis or, you know, whatever on the weekend. I like to play startup. I like looking at different startups. I like to read different business books. I, you know, that's, that's what I am wired to do, I, I guess, in a weird yeah. way. Um, no, that's, but, that's but, amazing. Uh, so what I was going to say is, as you were launching MicroCar, I can't even remember 
why I came across you on Twitter, uh, but I started following you on Twitter and seeing the content you were putting out. And having been a venture capitalist myself and a venture-backed founder who then transitioned over to um, after my last company exited, knowing that I didn't want to raise money for my next company, I'd seen all sides of, of this conversation around what types of startups, venture capital, no venture capital, bootstrapping. And you came out loud and proud about what it means to start a company and what you do need and what you don't need to start a company. And very specifically talk about how venture capital wasn't the answer. It, it's not the answer. It's not always the answer. And I don't necessarily, or I definitely don't think these are mutually exclusive thoughts, having that thought and then also raising venture capital. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this progression of building something that you love just because you wanted to scratch your own itch, then finding out there was revenue to be made, and then getting to a point where, you know, you're building this great bootstrap business and you realized, huh, maybe I should raise money or huh, maybe I need to raise money. Can you talk about that transition a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so we've done three financings. Do you want to hear the story of the first one? Yeah, definitely. So I have a, a template that I've sent more than a hundred times to just different investors. Like, hey, please follow up in like four to six weeks. I'm like super busy, but really appreciate the support. I'm sure someone listening to this has maybe gotten that email, but um, I, I had zero intentions of raising any capital. I didn't, you know, it just hadn't, it really wasn't like my plan, but, uh, I met with my first investor, Jeremy Levine, who I had known for, I met him about seven years ago through an introduction, um, from my first angel investor, Christian Friedland. Uh, we went to in and out and got burgers and. I randomly asked him about some of his favorite investments and he's a very humble, smart, just, I can't say enough good things about the guy. And, uh, the, the story goes, I, you know, we were circling around like a small seed round and then I was like, ah, I don't want to do this. It's not enough capital to really, cause what I wanted to build was, uh, pretty extensive. Like I got to a point where I realized to really build out the product vision this is going to be capital intensive. Otherwise it's just going to be a deal flow platform, but we wanted to innovate mm -hmm. on things like legal doc creation. We wanted to make due diligence easier so you can assess the health of the business easier. You can look at, you know, revenue expenses and kind of stitch together P and L. Um, we wanted to make transferring assets easier. Like all of these are, are could be different companies. Like the products are so complex. Uh, yeah. financing, escrow, you know, like really re rethinking, you know, how acquisitions in the lower uh, end of the market are done. And so I I kept pushing. And again, it's, it's just me. It's literally me. <laughs> and I had one person to help with customer support and which I, I just kept going. And uh, we were going to close a small seed round. It was like a 200K investment. And I just said, nah, I'm, I'll just fund it myself. So I wired 200K for my personal bank account. I did this, you could probably pull it up, but it's a funny tweet on the MicroQuare Twitter account. I wrote like, we just closed our seed round from Andrew Gazdecki and uh, <laughs> it was like $200,000 from my own account to continue right. funding the business. 
so I, I invested quite a bit of my own money just to, you know, really just building out, um, you know, really finding product market fit and continuing to, you know, grow both sides of the market, the supply and the demand and really just kind of feel out how big of an opportunity was this. And as every month went by, it became more and more obvious that this is this could be something that could help millions of entrepreneurs across the world. When we come back, Andrew tells us the story behind his first round of funding that wasn't from his own piggy bank and how it came into play. If you're a startup trying to sell into enterprises, I'm sure you've been dreading getting some sort of certification like SOC 2 or HIPAA. I know I did when I was running my last company and it cost us some important deals. If that's you, you're in luck because not only is there an awesome solution called Vanta that makes the process dead simple, but also funded listeners get $1,000 off the service by going to vanta.com slash funded. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash funded. Check it out. Andrew's main focus was always the business. He never really spent a lot of energy on fundraising. If anything, he avoided investors and ran the opposite of a process. Whatever he was doing, well, it was working. So after, you know, turning down Jeremy the first time, he just said, hey, let's catch up in like two weeks. And I, so I've also never made a pitch deck. So we just get on a call and I just walk him through kind of my thoughts on the business and where I think it could go and how I'm thinking about it. You know, kind of like we want to build like the Zillow of M&A, if that's an analogy. And uh, just on the spot, he just was like, listen, we'd love to work with you. Can we just invest two million at XYZ valuation? Which was we negotiated uh two point two million for ten percent. And that was it. And then I was like, okay. And then we put that money into additional engineering resources to continue building out like the marketplace and the product. Yeah. And then But before we continue, because cause you ended up building much more and um attracting more capital. Um I think the easy thing for an outsider to hear is like, oh God, this guy just didn't even build a deck, didn't do anything and and was able to raise money without even trying. Like maybe, maybe I can do that. And so like, it's really easy to say it happened really quickly, but you're about to say, I, I want to get your reaction to that and, and what you think about that. Yeah. So here, here's what I always say is if you want to raise capital, <laughs> ask for advice and if you want um uh what, i'm saying the phrase wrong um, you want advice at, yeah sometimes when you ask for advice you get capital and sometimes when you ask for cap most times when you ask for capital you get advice yeah so my focus was so much on building the business and not on fundraising it was almost zero on fundraising yeah i was focused entirely on moving the business forward so I'd create what I'd call momentum decks or just traction decks where, you know, user counts like, but I wasn't like outlining the problem or anything like that. Like if it wasn't obvious to you, then, you know, okay, I'm not going to explain, I'm not going to sell you on this. Like this is basically, you know, how fast we're growing. This is kind of like the numbers that I'm seeing. Um, So I would say, you know, the the best way to raise capital and then, Building in public really helped a lot too, because, you know, that's another way of just kind of like, yeah, I didn't make a pitch deck, 
but you kind of make a pitch deck because you're introducing your company to someone for the first time. But I was showing, you know, revenue numbers like from 200K, I still do. Yeah. Just to inspire other entrepreneurs and show them like, you know, hey, you can build something out of nothing too. Like, yeah, yeah. um, and, and I think what's really important is that you met Jeremy, you said seven years before he invested, right? And he's been watching you build businesses and sell businesses. And so what you said is exactly right. Is like a lot of founders when they need to raise money have to build a big, like a really great deck because they are rushing into the game and need the money. They're about to go out of business or whatever. And they need to be able to onboard an investor to understand what they're building and who they are and convince them as quickly as possible to be able to get them comfortable enough to raise money. Whereas you were focused on the business. You happened to meet investors along your journey. And when it came time, this investor is seeing an opportunity. And I'll tell you, there, there's nothing that excites an investor more than hearing no. <laughs> so the first time Jeremy trying to invest and you're like, ah, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, fund it myself. And then he hears more progress and more progress. Those are the deals that investors will fight to get into. So, um, yes, maybe, I guess it sounded like it happened quickly, but you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of company and relationship building that, that went into that. So, yeah, yeah no, I, I completely agree. I think I oversimplified it, but <laughs> Yeah, I think it just, it rings true in terms of, you know, and I think even after you raise funding, your focus should, like, I hate the term, the number one thing a CEO should be doing is always be fundraising. You should really be always trying to improve your business, like build a great team, have an awesome culture, make sure everyone is aligned in what you're doing, being a good leader, growing the business, creating happy customers. When you focus on those things, everything just kind of takes care of itself but you know i talk about this a lot openly but i feel you know when all you read about is big fundraising headlines and like you know xyz company raised 50 million then a day later they raise like 100 million it's like it skews entrepreneurs to think that you know to be successful you have to raise a bunch of capital and that's really what valuation and all these vanity metrics that really do not matter. Right. You know, it creates an environment where people are more focused on fundraising than actually building a business of value. And so I think just having the focus of, and even like now, like I'm still completely working just as hard, just as much because I still love what I'm doing um, more than ever. But the video game's still fun, huh? Yeah, but now I get to play with a bunch of friends, um, <laughs> you know, because we've obviously expanded. But I think I think that's one thing that, you know, has, and that's why I've been so outspoken about my thoughts on not raising venture capital. Like, I do not think, I think 99% of entrepreneurs should avoid venture capital at all costs. Yep. And I'll give you two reasons why. Um, Number one, it, it just depends on your goals. Like I, I truly believe a lot of entrepreneurs just want to make, you know, they want to be financially secure. <laughs> um, and the best way to do that is to bootstrap a business because I, I think the stat is like 98% of acquisitions are under $80 million. So just do the math on that. And then out of the companies that, do raise capital only one percent become a unicorn and actually i don't i think that's just to a unicorn but unicorn to like acquisition or ipo i don't know the stats 
but let's just assume it's like 10% of yeah. that 1%. Yeah. So you have a 10th of 1% to get to a liquidity event if you raise capital. So statistically, if you raise capital, your chances of making any money at all go down dramatically. Right. Especially if you raise a bunch of capital. The more capital you raise, uh, your buyer pool goes down because there's only so many people that can acquire a company for, or not people, excuse me, companies that can acquire a company for billions of dollars. And then, you know, you have to get lucky along the way. Like you have to have flawless execution. But if you just like, for example, I'll use MicroQuare as, yeah. as, as an example. You know, if I had just bootstrapped it and just kind of kept it as like a simple, less advanced deal flow platform, um, still adding a lot of value for a lot of people and helping a lot of entrepreneurs, I could sell it whenever I want. But I wanted to, you know, really build out something that I think would change acquisitions for entrepreneurs all across the globe. and. Um, that was really kind of the mindset shift yeah. of, you know, hey, this, if I really assembled a team to invest in all of these different products, I think we could build something really special that could impact a lot of people. So, yeah. So, you know, so actually that shift in mindset, this is something to dig into because the first raise you talked about was, you know, you wanted to build more, but like you're having fun and so you'll just fund it yourself. And some people want to invest, but you don't need their money. You'll just fund it yourself. And then you end up taking venture capital, which, which does change the game, right? So now you are on the treadmill and you know that you need to get to this next proof point. Can you tell us a little bit about when you went out to raise the next time? Was it any different? How did that setup occur and, and what was going through your mind then? Yeah, good question. So we originally thought we could build out our entire product roadmap with the capital that I had on hand. Um, and so the original capital raise was um, like two and a half million, eh? which is a, a lot of money. But to really, the products we were building, you know, we needed separate teams for each. And so the second capital raise we went out, um, it was really just other investors that were users of MicroQuire. <laughs> they had asked to invest. And so um, the second fundraise, I think it was about a, over a year ago, um, I just reached back out and said, hey, we're looking to raise a little bit. Like, I think we started with an idea to raise another $2 million, And there was so much interest that we went to, I think it was five. And they were all microquire users. So I kind of got lucky there where, you know, my customers were angel investors, right. venture capitalists, and successful startup founders. So that made raising capital very, very easy because they had used the product and then also their investors themselves. Right. So that period that happened from initially you know, reaching out to say the first investor, I can't remember who the first one in was, but um, it took about a week to fully, um, you know, fill the round, if you will. And again, it was because I think people really wanted this to exist. They were all startup founders. That second round, I focused the majority on, you know, entrepreneurs yeah. for strategic purposes. One for, you know, access to additional deal flow. And then two, just, you know, you're building a company and I'd love to learn from you. And I get a ton of really great advice from my investors, which has been amazing. 
people I look up to, you know, people I, you know, idolized and like admired and like now they're, you know, supporters of my company. So it was, it was very humbling to have them want to invest and um, use that capital to, again, expand engineering and operations. Is this when you were able to bring on um, some of the the A-lister angels on, that I see on your cap table? Pomp, Naval, Sahil, Ryan Hoover? Uh, so Naval came in. The first financing was with uh, Jeremy Levine, Naval, and uh, Andreas Klinger. And then the second financing was like the big sort of group financing. Got it, got it. And, and is that people finding out about your company via Twitter and wanting to, you know, sort of reaching out and wanting to invest, or did you go after them? A mixture of both. Okay. So word gets out kind of quickly, but I did reach out to, I had a list of people that I admired and I thought could add a lot of value to MicroQuire. And so I just reached out and said, Hey, we're, I'm Andrew. I noticed you use MicroQuire where they can raise <laughs> additional capital. Um, I'd love to have you on board. And it kind of just had a snowball effect um, from there. But That's awesome. It, one thing I'll point out is uh, you got really lucky. You're in one of two categories. So you're in this one category of businesses that venture capitalists know very well. So one category where there are multiple unicorns, multi-billion dollar companies is note-taking apps. <laughs> there's like a, <laughs> there's a weird a glut of multi-billion dollar note-taking apps. And the joke is that, well, venture capitalists, when they see someone pitch a note-taking app, they understand it. They're like, oh, this is a problem that I that I have that I want to you know, fund. Um, it turns out there's another one, which is <laughs> buying and selling companies. So there's this funny joke about venture capitalists, um, and it's reflected in the number of billion dollar note-taking apps there are. It's like if a venture capitalist really, truly understands the problem, they want to invest in that company. And it turns out like one of the only categories that venture capitalists really understand is, is note-taking apps. That's why Notion and Evernote and, and Rome and all these companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. But it turns out you landed in a second category, which is <laughs> near and dear to a venture capitalist heart, which is uh, seeing companies um, get acquired. And so you just landed in this great place where... VCs will, will use your product on the side, see companies they know use it on the side and um, really, really want to invest. So it's really, it's, it's very cool that you've been building this product. And then you raised one more round of capital. Is that right? Yeah. So that one, um, but to your point too, there was, I mean, if I'm just thinking through, you know, the reasons to invest in microquires, you know, let's say you're an angel investor or a VC fund. I've helped some of my investors' portfolio companies sell right. on MicroQuire. So they almost get their return back from, you know, selling companies on MicroQuire. And then I've had some of my investors buy multiple companies on MicroQuire. So it, it I definitely did, did get lucky there. So um, maybe next time I'll build a the note taking app into and and micro require and, and just go crazy. Um yeah, the second fundraising was um prompted by a shrug capital. We had a call, um one of my favorite firms, Nibimoshi, and uh they just offered they wanted to put in uh what they called just a core check. And I said, sure, 
And then I went to Jeremy, got his thoughts and said, um, what's your thoughts on maybe raising um, another round of capital so we can you know, really hit the gas? Because I'd identified a few areas where we could really expand you know, our, cause we have four ways that we make money at microquire and I really wanted to hit the gas on two. And so basically they prompted the raise and then all the other investors in that raise were existing investors from the previous round. So I believe only one new investor came into the third financing. Yeah. One new investor. And then the rest were just insiders doubling down on their existing investment into microquire. So, and I think that happened because number one, they saw the progress I was making and I always try to do my best to give really detailed monthly updates with, you know, how everything is going, how many acquisitions, the volume of acquisitions, how many users are signing up, how is revenue doing? And so I think that happened over uh, Thanksgiving week. And I believe only 10 or 12 investors were involved in that. So again, I just reached out to existing investors saying, hey, we're going to raise a little bit more money to invest here, here, and here. And yeah, they were all interested and it, it went pretty smoothly. So I've, I've been pretty lucky in terms of, you know, I guess venture capital found me um, rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think, again, what might be easy for someone to do is just kind of be annoyed at hearing this story because of how easy it was for you, quote unquote, easy. But easy is not the right word to use, right? <laughs> it's like um, you did all the right things, right? Yeah. But I would say yeah. the amount of work I put into building the business, like if, if someone made that comment, like, hey, okay, this, this kid just, you know, it's so easy for him, but it's so hard for me. I was working like an unhealthy amount just to make, because I, I truly, truly believe this business needed to exist for entrepreneurs. And so I was willing to work 100%. literally every waking hour to make it work. And sometimes that's what you need to do. You need to will the business into existence. And that's kind of where I go back to like, you don't really need financing. Yeah. You know, venture capital is really just a tool that accelerates, you know, things that you want to do within your business. By no means do you need venture capital. So if you're spending all your time, you know, pitching investors, hearing no's, you should probably just spend that time like focusing on your business, like talk to your customers. I used to just sit on live chat, even on the weekends. I just sit on live chat. I'd learned so much from customers, like previous, like past field acquisitions, like writing down different problems or ways to solve things. Just like having that focus on the business makes fundraising easy. So you're putting the hard work where it should be, which is on, again, putting value in your business and creating value for your customers instead of trying to, you know, impress whatever VC with your pitch and your story and your deck super pretty or whatever. Like, I guess from, from my vantage point, most investors just, like it's important, but I think what's more important is, you know, are you capable of building, you know, a big business and is this a big opportunity in terms of market size? And is this, you know, something that is in line with yeah. your personal ambition? I think that that came across, um, with a lot of investors and it made the decision easy. I can only speculate. No, I, I think there's a lot to say on that topic, but I usually love asking founders, you know, what's a piece of advice they'd give 
an earlier version of themselves or another founder that's going out there. And you know, you already gave one, which I think is amazing. You know, focus on the business, really focus on building a great business and funding will come. Can you think of a second one? Any any other specific thing you'd like to share? Yeah, I would say when you build a startup, it could be whatever you want. You know, there's this thing where and this happens to a lot of people that raise capitals. Like you mentioned the treadmill. Like where you feel like you always have to be making these like short-term decisions to impress the next set of investors because that's what your investors want you to do is raise more capital. Um, but your investors make no money when you raise <laughs> additional capital. So I guess I would say continue that focus on customers and really building a business of value and not just trying to build, you know, a fundable thing that just keeps raising money and money and money until you're at a point where, you know, you're either going to be acquired yeah. for, a, you know, a lot of money or maybe it's just valued at a lot of money. You got to grow into that investment. I mean, raising money is, is kind of like if you, if you raise money before you're ready, it's like putting rocket fuel into a rocket. And if you put that rocket fuel and you're not ready for it, like yeah. the business can explode. So I'd say just stay focused on um, customers, but going back to a different point, you know, focus on, you know, something that you, you, you do for free. Like I ran MicroQuire for free for over a year because I truly enjoyed it. And I think when you can find a business that you would actually do that for, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I was able to, to do that and not, like not have a salary and draw any, you know, revenue from the business. Um, but I mean, I think those are the founders that go the farthest is because you don't really care about, yeah. you're not thinking about money. You're thinking about, you know, the impact that you can make and, you know, the value you can deliver to, like the, the funny part about MicroQuare is, you know, I've, I've accepted we could fail, you know, every startup can fail, you know, that's just how startups work. Um, but even if MicroQuare does fail, we've made, you know, a ton of entrepreneurs, you know, millionaires, you know, and I think that's a win in itself. So, you know, if you, if you want to create your video game, right? Yeah. Create your video game. And then, you know, and then the second part of that would be, you know, write down what you want out of a startup. Like if, if it's just a few million dollars or which is a lot of money and you just want to be financially secure, avoid venture capital at all costs because you can get there a lot faster and really with a lot of headaches. Yep. Um, because, you know, I, I view MicroQuire as a business I want to run for the next, you know, decade. But, you know, if you're just looking to become financially secure, you're, it, you know, there's not a lot of data on this, but I truly believe your stats or your chances are just so much higher. And I see it every single day at MicroQuire. So just, you know, find something that you would do for free and then focus on just, you know, creating as much business value and not um, impressing investors and the rest just kind of takes care of itself. I love that. Before our interview, I was so excited to pick Andrew's brain and hear about the craziest businesses he's seen on acquire.com. The story I like to tell the most about just the most, and this is like how much opportunity there is with software today. So there's this business that was this simple, it would basically like if I took a screenshot of your face, <laughs> it would just remove the background. So you'd have like a PNG yep. with a transparent background and it was making like, let's call it like 500 to a million profit, 500K to a million profit. And that's all it did. And the whole strategy was like search engine optimization. So if you type in like 
background remover for image or something like that. And it sold for like 3 million bucks. And it was ran by one guy. Everything was automated. It was just like a internet vending machine, just printing money. It was, I've seen several businesses like that. Oh man. But you know, people might kind of be like, oh, well, like, why would you build that and not a big thing? And you know, that guy or the person who sold it, you know, walked away. Uh, uh, it's probably super happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. So we get to see, we get to see a lot of fun businesses and then also very niche too, like a CRM for uh dentist is one I've actually seen. I didn't know dentists, you know, needed a CRM. Um, uh, you know, just really niche software. And it just kind of opens your eyes to this different world of like, Again, you don't need to build a billion dollar business to be successful as an entrepreneur. And that's really our goal with microcars. We want to help support those businesses and just show the world like, hey, like, yeah, there's this path that you read about all the time, but there's also this other path that a lot of other people should check out because it might be a little bit more practical and realistic depending on what your goals are. All right. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Uh, this is a really fun conversation. Big fan. Um, you still having fun? It sounds like you're having fun. Yeah, man. I mean, all I do, I get to talk to cool people like you all day. I'm like a cool <laughs> startups all day. Appreciate you having me on. That was my conversation with Andrew Gazdecki, founder of Acquire.com, the best online marketplace to buy and sell startups. When we come back, we'll see how stumped my producer Paige is. I have a feeling she's getting the hang of some of the VC lingo. Some people might be surprised to hear that I've struggled with focus my entire life because I got good grades, went to good schools, landed good jobs. But all that was in spite of being a crazy procrastinator. I tried a bunch of things like productivity apps and planning rituals, but nothing really stuck. When I heard people talk about Magic Mind, this super productivity drink. I was really skeptical, but a friend convinced me to try it and totally changed my mind. When you drink Magic Mind, you just have this focus kind of wash over you. Like those distractions that normally make you do the things that you don't want to do, those are gone. And it's been kind of amazing for me. I'm a fan of Magic Mind and they've been awesome enough to give a crazy discount to my listeners. My discount code FUNDED lasts forever and will get you 20% off your purchase. But if you get to the site magicmind.co slash funded within 10 days of this episode airing, your total discount will be 50% off. Check it out. It's awesome. Hey, Paige. Hi, Jason. So what did you think about the interview with Andrew Gazdecki? Actually, before that, uh, had you ever heard of Andrew Gazdecki before? No, I had not, but I am very, like I said, I'm still assimilating into this world of people building companies, but. Yeah. I, and I'm so glad because there are so many characters online to follow <laughs> and Andrew is one of them. Uh, before we even did the interview, I knew of him and I was following him and, uh, he did this great thing where he, do you know what cameo is? Mm -hmm. It's like you, you can hire celebrities to do random videos. He got the <laughs> actor that played Russ Hanneman on Silicon Valley to do this over-the-top selfie video promoting um, Acquire.com and Andrew Gazdecki. Uh, and that was great. He's a great follow. You should follow him. I will definitely be doing that after this. He, I One of the things I actually noticed while listening to this episode is he, he just – 
he doesn't even mean to, it seems like, but he has such a good sense of humor without even realizing it. Yeah. Um, and the way he expresses himself with this like calm confidence, <laughs> he doesn't even realize that he's doing it. And it was, he was really, um, it was, I enjoyed listening to him. Yeah. You can tell that he's having fun. You know, he, you can tell that he really enjoys what he's doing. Even the interview was part of his company and he loves doing it. Um, you know, this is the, that's just the thing that gets you amped to talk to certain founders for sure. Yeah, and that's why I enjoyed um, hearing about his background and honestly kind of where I had my first open-ended question, I guess I would say, uh, because you were asking about his childhood, you know, how he grew up. And something that I noticed is that he said being an entrepreneur was out of necessity. And I guess I have like a counterclaim to that because you know, we all come from different backgrounds. And he was mentioning he grew up in a very nice area and he didn't grow up with as many things as the people surrounding him. So back to my point is he said that it was out of necessity that he became an entrepreneur. But what I've noticed is some kids who grow up with similar backgrounds to him, that honestly, that makes them feel like even more they can't become an entrepreneur because they feel like they don't have the resources, they don't have the network. So I guess my first question for you would be, do you think that certain people are almost just born to be founders and have that mindset? Because not everyone in his situation grew up viewing the world in the way that he did. Yeah, what a funny question. Um, funny because I was chatting about this with my entrepreneur friend at dinner about like, what are the things that go into a founder that is successful and a founder that is a venture backed founder that's successful? I think there are probably a few characteristics that help someone get down the certain path or uh, be someone that's predisposed to enjoying what entrepreneurship represents. But I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's one profile and, and only this one profile that ends up becoming an entrepreneur or ends up being a successful entrepreneur. I've seen people from very different backgrounds, people with a chip on their shoulder that needed to prove something someone that grew up feeling like everything they wanted was always out of reach and they wanted to get to it really quickly. And the only way to short circuit that was by building their own business. And then sometimes people that grow up with great means who got everything because they don't have any risk of, I don't need to make money. It allows them to leverage their own intelligence, their existing network, and just go for broke and go really big because they can, right? Like if they fail, they have something to fall back on. And I've seen yeah. all those profiles work out. So yeah, I'm not surprised that you're like, huh, I've seen different profiles. It's definitely possible. I guess the reason I was just so intrigued is because when he was speaking about it, he was like, it was out of necessity. And I <laughs> think regardless of the background that you come from, I guess not with every single founder, but with a lot of successful founders, they have this necessity to solve a problem and to create something. And I yeah. just really wanted to point that out because he said it with such, uh, I don't know, such confidence that he just yeah. knew that that's what he had to do. I think it's a good call out. What it, I mean, it's your own personal framing of that necessity, right? But you're right. Like every founder that we talk to that is successful and has gotten to the next stage and beyond, they have their own framing of why this is like a burning necessity for them. Some people, it's 
like Andrew felt like he needed to get these things that were out of reach. Other people want to prove something. Other people just like want to scratch an itch or like have to solve a problem. But yeah, if you don't have that burning, like feeling like what I'm doing right now, like I have to be doing this, um, it's going to be a hard road. So. And I think that that's something that investors can recognize as well. I think maybe that's one of the things that attracted so many investors in the end, along with, with you know, many other factors. There's another question I wanted to ask you about, which is when he finished working on his first business, I can't remember yeah. the name right now. And as soon as, I think during, while it was getting acquired, he started working on his next business. Yeah. And I feel like this is semi-common within founders who want to create multiple businesses before they even finish the one before. They're already thinking about it. And he mentions how he recommends maybe you take a little bit of a break. He's like, and, that. Yeah, right, right, exactly. I just wanted to, you to talk about, you know, some of the benefits maybe that might come from, you know, staying on that motivation acceleration train of trying to build something else and, you know, maybe point out possibly some of the downsides because i think you've experienced something similar as well correct yeah that's right i mean i think it's very common for entrepreneurs to just want to continue entrepreneuring <laughs> and they're yeah, right. probably good, good drivers for that and they're definitely negative drivers for that i think the good one is that at some point people just get addicted to slash find pure enjoyment in like the problem solving and the constant problem solving and the and running the playbook around building a business that like when you think about what do you want to do like you're not doing it because you need to make money anymore or you're not doing it because of a potential outcome you're doing it because like if i had a decision to do five different things i would still choose to just work on this next business it's not it, you know, Andrew talks about this, like he's having fun. We talk about this. He's having fun. Yeah. And it's like, it's just what's the next hobby he would work on? Well, it would be another business. I think the dark side of that is that, and this is my disclaimer for other people, because I've, I've felt this too, which is um, this feeling like you have to, or like this feeling yeah. like it's, if, if you don't continue become being an entrepreneur or, or building businesses, like you know, no one will respect you or if it's all like externally motivated. And so I, I do think people should hear the same advice that Andrew gave, which is like, take time off, develop a diversity of experiences and hobbies, like um, try to yeah, spend see time where that family and friends. intention is coming from, see where that intention is coming from. And if it is internal and you genuinely just feel that necessity to solve another problem, hell yeah. But, uh, but find some time. Yeah. But find some time with your friends and family and some other experience as well. I think that's probably something that Andrew would recommend as well. Yeah, definitely. There's something else I think I wanted to touch on, which is all of his investors for his second raise were actually users of Acquire, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. I know that he Acquire is is within the VC world and people use it all the time. But he was seriously being chased by investors. And I want just your thoughts on why you think that was. Yeah. I mean, I think when you can do a few things all at once is one, like start building real traction and momentum in a business while also keeping the investor community aware of what you're doing. 
And then finally kind of giving investors a bit of the cold shoulder, a bit of the like, oh, like, I'm not going to raise from you. I'm just going to do it myself because it's such a great business. And then I'm not going to raise from formal venture capitalists. I'm going to let my customers invest first. Like, so VCs, you can't even get in there now. Like that, I always tell people like the most powerful words that a VC can hear is no. Like turning them away just makes them be like, oh my God, they don't need my money. That makes me want to give them money more. So I'm sure some of this was very calculated and parts of this are just like running a good business, right? I'm running a good business that doesn't need outside capital and I don't want to waste time investing or fundraising. So I'm just going to keep running my business and if VCs want to hear about me, they can. So by the time that he went to go do his first raise from outside investors, like there were already, there was already so much heat around him and awareness of his deal and excitement to do that, that once he kicked off whatever process he ran, there was already this like pressure and scarcity around how much people yeah. wanted to do the deal that that's why it became so smooth. And he touched on this in the middle of the episode, talking about how, you know, all these founders focus on on the raise and he was like, you should be focusing on the culture, on the environment, on the team, on how can you literally perfect your process so much within your company that, I mean, it's honestly just the natural next step to get some capital to accelerate the growth of your company. Yeah. Step one of running a great fundraise is run a great business. And I think most, maybe not most, a lot of first-time founders skip that step. And they just think they need to raise. And because Andrew had been through the game a couple times, he knew he just wanted to build a great business. And if there was a point in time where outside investor capital was the thing that he needed to accelerate the business, then he would do that and not the other way around. Yeah. I think the media also has associated raising a lot of money with successful business, whereas it's supposed to be successful business, raise a lot of money in a way, yeah. or like that's the more natural way to look at it. And I think it it leads, you know, sometimes founders to, and we've talked about this before, but like founders to feel trapped in feeling like they have to raise because that's what gets the media's attention. But as from Andrew's perspective, which he touched on numerous times, it was about building the best possible business. And then if people want to help him accelerate that, then it's going to happen because they're going to recognize the success that's already there. So yeah, I just, I appreciate his mindset. Yeah, the ultimate irony of having Andrew Gazdecki from Acquire.com on Funded is that Andrew's big thing, both for his company and his own personal belief, is that you shouldn't raise venture capital. Like 99% of entrepreneurs should not raise venture capital. They should run their own business. They should be playing for a small exit. And he wants to give the best platform and experience to making that process as painless as possible. And, you know, as ironic as that is, it's it's almost not ironic because I believe it too. Yeah. I I love the work of trying to help founders who are uh, dedicated to building a venture-backed business um, and helping them understand how to raise capital the most effective way. But I find that 90% of my work is kind of convincing a lot of people that they shouldn't be raising venture capital. And mm -hmm. neither... Uh, certainly Andrew doesn't think this, but my message is definitely not this either. 
like my message of you shouldn't raise venture capital isn't you're running a bad business. It's that it's just not the right fit for you. You can run an amazing business with huge financial outcomes without you know raising venture capital. And, and it's a great message to put out there to make sure that people are going down the path that's right for them. Yeah. Well, it's been cool to learn a lot about the fundraising process through you and and a bunch of different VCs and founders because I think that a lot of founders, you don't learn about the fundraising process until you're in it and you're raising. And I think it's cool that we're creating an opportunity for founders to learn about it beforehand so then they can really decide, you know, is this good for the business? Is this just something external that I think I need? And they can make a more uh, proper decision around what's the best for them. But I think that's a really cool way to almost wrap this up. And I just wanted to mention something that he said that I loved, which was find something that you would do for free and just keep creating value. And maybe you can add your own thoughts on that. But I just I just loved that so much. And I just wanted to share it again for people to hear. I think that's spot on. Spot, 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 spot on 100%. And I'll flip it around to you uh, to end this and say, what is that thing that you would do for free that you might sell on acquire.com in a few years? What do you think that could be? Oh my gosh, you're talking to me. <laughs> I thought you were talking yeah. to the listeners for a second. Something that I would be interested in is I've thought a lot about, I would like to create something where I actually go into other businesses and I help create uh, stronger communities and connections within them. You know, whatever business that might be. It could be any type of business because I just like to get involved with groups of people and, you know, foster a better environment. I'm not sure if I could sell that on acquire.com or even if I would want it to get acquired because I want to be <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, that's the one thing that's been toying around in my mind as of awesome. lately. Well, you'd be awesome at that. And I'm sure Andrew would help you sell that on acquire.com if you got to there. Yeah, I might have to reach out to him. If you're looking for more insights, strategies, and support around the process of fundraising, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at fundedpod.com newsletter. And find me on social. I'm at J-A-Y-E-H, that's J-A-Y-Y-E-H, on almost every platform. I respond to newsletter replies and DMs, so hit me up. This episode was produced by Paige Randall. Hey, guys. Thanks also to John O'Lee from Adamant. Hello, friends. And thanks to Andrew Gazdecki for creating a place for entrepreneurs and founders all over the world to control and sell their businesses the way they want to. As always, one last thanks to our fantastic sponsor, Vanta, the leading automated security and compliance platform.